Guess what, cinephiles? I've just heard something absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, so you know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a tiny fraction of what Netflix actually has. Netflix actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only like 6,000 of those are available in the U.S., so you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows, unless you use ExpressVPN. Yeah, Steve, ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location. So like, for example, if you're looking for stuff that's from another country, you're based here in the United States, you actually change your online location to Australia or the UK so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. They have over 100 different locations. They're on ExpressVPN. So you can, you can gain access to like thousands of of new shows no matter where you live. And this works with many other streaming services too there. You guys have Disney Plus or Hulu or Max or the BBC iPlayer, which is the one I use. I know I've used ExpressVPN to connect to Australia because I really love this show called Have You Been Paying Attention? I just put myself in Melbourne and I get access to it. You sign up using your email, but you immediately get access to the stuff. I've used the BBC iPlayer to watch a number of shows there on the BBC like Law & Order UK and others. And sometimes this show Guilty that I love that uh, screens there when the new seasons pop up, because it takes like four months to get them on PBS, I watch them there using ExpressVPN. And it's incredible how easy it is and how simple it is to use. So why should you use ExpressVPN? Well, first of all, it is super fast. That means you can stream everything in HD with no buffering. It works on any device. So I'm an Apple guy, which means I've already installed it on my Mac, on my iPhone, on my iPad, and on my Apple TV. I'd install it on my Apple Watch if I could, and it encrypts your data. Now, this is hugely important because it protects your privacy and your security to keep you safe from hackers. So stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you guys three extra months of free use when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash cinephiles. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S to get three extra months completely free. Hi, everyone. As most of you know, supporting the Cinephiles on Patreon gives you access to our weekly Cinephile Shorts. Now, Cinephile Shorts are a brief, and sometimes not so brief, discussion on a wide range of topics, some of which are suggested by our patrons, others relate to news of the day, and not necessarily film news. And some of our favorite shorts are just plain interesting conversations. So today we wanted to give all of you a small taste of what these shorts are like. Our first conversation goes way back to January of 2018, when John and I finally explained something that has come up many times on The Cinephiles, and that is the A to Z theory of relationships. Then we jump forward two years to April of 2020 in a discussion of what is arguably the most consistently successful movie studio of all time, and that, of course, is Pixar. Sometimes an idea occurs to us after we finish recording an episode that's so interesting we feel the need to revisit a film, and this one is called Close Encounters of the Field of Dreams. And finally, about a month ago, John and I were having a really interesting and frankly heartfelt conversation when I just decided to hit record. 
The result is one of the most intimate and honest things we've ever recorded and a, a very true expression of our friendship. Now this is just a small sample of the great material available exclusively to our patrons on patreon.com slash the cinephiles. That's patreon.com slash the cinephiles and a whole bunch of cinephile shorts. Hope you like them. <laughs> Hello, Cinephile patrons. Uh, welcome to a special Patreon edition of the Cinephiles. And we are here to talk about something that has come up at least two or three times in the course of the Cinephiles. And you re- you really want to get into this. Yeah, because we keep teasing it. So it's about time we talk. Okay. And that is what uh, has been named the A to Z theory. Yeah. So the A to Z theory uh, is something that came up with a very good friend of mine, two of I had long, long conversations with over the years about relationships. And this is, I'll explain very simply what it is, which is that the A to Z theory is basically in your mind, as you imagine the perfect mate, you are thinking of, ah, what I really want is all these things, A to Z. Mm -hmm. They will like all the same things that I like. They'll have this kind of body. We'll have this kind of sex life. We'll have eat this kind of food, live this kind of life, have this many kids. This is the perfect person. Mm -hmm. And when you fall in love, nobody's really going to have every single thing that you want. They're going to have, maybe they have T through Z and they have B and they have D and they have a couple of other things. And when you first fall in love, you're so excited about those things that you love that you're not really paying it that much attention to things they don't have. And then there also might be some negative things because everybody comes with their whatever negative baggage and that stuff when you first fall in love, you don't really notice it so much, Mm -hmm. but then you get into a long-term relationship and after you know, two, three, four years, the stuff that they have that you really love, you're used to it. Right. So it fades a little bit in your knowledge and you really start to notice the things that you're not getting. Like, oh, they don't like going dancing or they don't like the same kind of movies that I like, or I can't relate to them in this way or that way. And the negatives when you first started dating, which seemed like uh, not such a big deal after year, after year, after year, you become much more aware of them. Right. And you start to notice these are the things I have that I don't like. And these are the things that I lack. Have you been in a relationship for three, four, five, ten 10 years? Mm-hmm. And then when you're out in the world and you meet other people, maybe they have G or M or L that you don't have in your relationship. And that you suddenly go, Oh my God, this is what I'm missing. Right. And those things become really, really important. And you also notice they don't have whatever those negatives that the person you're with has, and you go, this is what I need. And of course, because you're just meeting that person, you aren't noticing all the gaps that they have or the negatives that they have. And that's basically the A to Z theory. Wow. Yeah, and yeah. I remember when I, the first time he presented me this theory, I was knee deep in this, uh, beginning this, what would end up being a terrible relationship for me. Right. And it was incredibly difficult starting the relationship itself. And you said it to me and you said, well, this reminds me of the A to Z theory. And you said, and she, and you said well, she, I said, well, she's my A to Z. That's bullshit. And you were like, no, she could be your A to T or your T to Z or maybe your M to P or something like this where it isn't. And I was so mad at you. I remember we got into a fight about it because yeah. it was you were exposing something that I was not ready to talk about or was sensitive about. The relationship was that I knew inherently she was not going to be the one, even though I wanted to convince myself fervently that she was, because she was missing certain things about her, her personality and her treatment of me that would have been uh, most of the letters, if not all. And so I didn't want to admit it, and I didn't want to admit that was possible, right? I thought it was an excuse. And so, well, and I, but obviously now, it's very clear to me now, 
not just because of the relationship, because of the experience and getting right. older and understanding that this is very true. Well, and you're, I mean, you're more of a romantic than me. Well, I was. And, and, and <laughs> maybe, not maybe anymore. Not so Trust anymore. me, not but, anymore. But, well, and the reality is, is that, uh, you know, that those first feelings of falling for someone, it feels like A to Z. Yes, of that course. person yeah. feels like yeah. this is everything I need. Everything feels fulfilled. Right. You know, there's a whole thing, by the way, that's really interesting in terms of the chemi- the chemicals that, that get released in your body at different stages of relationships. Mm. And and oh, interesting. Yeah, and the first one, which I, if I thought about this, I might have looked up what they actually were. But the first one, that first attraction, happens very very strongly, mm-hmm. and it happens very very quickly. And one of the things that happens, by the way, is that with men, it's visual and it's. Uh, uh, from a distance, yeah. and and you, men kind of tend to go, and these are generalizations, of mm-hmm. course, but men tend to go, oh, I want that, mm-hmm. and it builds very strongly, and then after sex, that chemical drops down in men, because, and we could go into the biology and evolution sure. of why that is, and in terms of men have lots of sperm, and they their best evolutionary plan is to spread it around in order to reproduce their selfish genes, that would be the theory, <laughs> and women have a very few number of eggs, and they have uh, to protect a child and 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 create monogamy and so what happens is that chemical with women spikes after sex and continues to rise mm-hmm. um and this of course is one of the ways that men and women are, are kind of fucked in relationships yeah. but then as as that one fades other ones which are companionship and other things kind of fill in over time right. um but that first blast of attraction is like everything that i need in the universe is being fulfilled by this person right and unfortunately it blinds you to some degree to you know the the long-term relationships are that's not you're not going to be a hundred percent fulfilled you know you are going to be you're going to have a partnership and you're going to learn to work together and there's you know other stuff yeah like i have this relationship with with sarah right our friend sarah like i can't imagine at this point a uh relationship coming along for me dating wise that would come close to right. the friendship I have and the knowledge that we have any inside jokes and things of that nature that we've shared over 20 years of friendship you have long-term companionship relationship exactly and yeah. it, it would be a miracle if someone came along that could match that well I think this is Karen and I talked about this. so so yeah uh, my wife we, she and I started dating in 91 mm-hmm. we were both in our very early 20s and we got married in 97 and so this is you know we've been together for 26 years 26 27 years that's a really long time and um but all of you guys that we met you were a group of friends and most of you were all single well into your late 20s and 30s and and even 40s right and it's like that meant that the solidity and the history and the companionship of those friendships are so much deeper Mm -hmm. than the friendships i had when i started dating and to, to me like what therefore a new relationship has to overcome to 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 hook up with one of you guys yeah. is a lot more. That's tough. Yeah, and and I've had that experience with people I've dated who have seen our bonds of friendship within the our group of friends and have been extremely intimidated. Yeah, by it. like my I dated a girl who was twenty seven at the time. I was thirty seven, thirty six, something like right. that at the time, and she came into our group. She would throw up before every group. Wow, get together because she was intimidated by the largeness of our group, but also the age of our group and our desire to talk about like actual real shit at parties. Like, you know, the Steve Morris questions and whatever that would come up about the world and all those kinds of things. And so as great as she was, I knew that that this, it was eventually going to end because you have to be able to deal with that. And because we've established that so strongly. So I feel, 
at times sympathetic to these people who Absolutely. walk in. And I try my hardest for other people's boyfriends or girlfriends who walk into our group to kind of walk them through it and, and bust their balls and be a little playful with them so that they understand that they're part of the group as well. Now, most of them respond well to it. Some of them haven't and have felt that I've been rejecting them from the group because I try to be as familiar as possible in my efforts to make them feel as comfortable as yeah. possible in the situation. Yeah. Karen's really great at that. She mm-hmm. just really sees people that like, oh, you're feeling a little out of place. I'm going to go approach you and, and right. try to welcome you. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, because it, our group is a our group is a lot and is. Uh, really unusual. I don't know anybody. I talk to family and friends that are like, you have what? Yeah. You have 70 people rolling yeah. into Star Wars. Right. You have the, and even, I mean, it's obviously changed, but yeah, it's a lot to come up against. And it's, it's you know, figuring out relate you know my parents were high school sweethearts they dated wow. they went out for the first time when they were 16 and they got married when they were 21 22 right. 21 right um is that the to be someone in your 30s and 40s and be dating as you are like i don't that seems really hard it sucks yeah it, it really sucks because and especially now because you're like the to bring it back to the a to z theory is like what is my a to z and and where I used to be like, I got to find my A to Z. Now right. I'm more like, I'm cool if I get my A to maybe. You, you want some letters. F or G. Like if I can get just get half of the alphabet, I'm cool. Well, the other thing too is funny. We just did a commentary track on <laughs> Citizen Kane. Yeah. And one of the things we talked about in Citizen Kane was people like Leland and people uh, who could call Kane on his shit. Right, right, right. Is that you, what we think is we want people around us who just are butterflies and sunshine and make us feel good all the time but what we actually need and i'm sure this is true i know this is true of you and your yeah. long-term friendships and certainly true of me is people who can call me on my shit is that you need people that can stand up to you you need people that are going to challenge you Absolutely. you need people that are going to take you to places that you wouldn't have gone yeah. on your own yep. like i have a tendency because i'm very uh solitary is i'll tend to just not talk to anybody mm-hmm. for a while and karen will pull me out and make yeah. me do things that sometimes i don't really want to do and it's really good for me to do that stuff Mm -hmm. you know i find that to be a prevalent relationship throughout our throughout our group of friends not to bring up people because maybe some people don't want their relationships named you know but there's like there's that couple we have that is one guy is a real introvert the other girl is an actress and she's an extrovert and so it's like that happens throughout i think our and anybody i guarantee you the person that ends up with michael has to be an introvert to balance out michael's extrovert nature and so that's just kind of how it is and this is why thinking like if you think you know imagine you're a perfect person right that's probably not who you need (laughs) you know very true you need something i mean the 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 best relationships you we know i mean like they're surprising yeah you know like like someone who can kind of rock somebody else's world Mm -hmm. you know yeah the the and and the thing too and again it's it's because i've talked to people in their first year of marriage, and usually first year is really hard mm-hmm. because that's, I think, when the, all these A to Z negatives and positives really, they come into focus because you go from, oh, this is all cool. I can deal with this, like to, oh, I have to deal with this for the rest of my life. Right. That's the and thing. And that's a lot to handle. That's the option that that changes once you get married is this Which, option yeah. you could leave at any moment. Yeah. Now it's more like, well, no, you, you yeah. committed, you vowed, you have to kind of- Like I out. have to deal with this person that leaves their underwear on the floor for the rest of my life. Um, you know, those are hard things or whatever the thing is. Yep. Um, and, and the thing like to me is that no long-term relationships are about negotiating a way to exist with this other person in a positive manner over a long, and it is not going to be easy. No, you know, it's going to be hard. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's funny too. We talked about, um, 
is like there are some relationships I know where the couple is open about the fact that they might be attracted to other people, that their relationship might have ups and downs. And there are relationships I know where that is never spoken, that that will never be, you know, and mine is the former, you know, like Karen, I talk about things like that all the time. Wow. Um, Well, because that's, because I mean, you know me, I don't, I can't not talk about a thing. Yeah, true. You know, which is ironic because you talk about how you get, when you get introverted, you shut down and don't talk about anything. Oh yeah. I need space. Right, right. Right. But then I will then I will have a discussion mm-hmm. about the thing. You yeah. know what I mean? But I need time to like heal and kind of take care of myself right. before I'm going to deal with the thing. But it depends on how you want to work your relationship. Because mm-hmm. for some people, like the idea, it can never be spoken if someone was attracted to somebody else. Yeah, I don't think I could handle that in my relationship. Uh, it frustrated me in the five-year relationship I was in that that person would keep bringing up the fact that her, her boss was trying to set her up with other people while we were living together. Well, that would bother me too. Dating. And I was like, and and she would tell me how other people found her attractive or would hit on her. And it drove me insane because I had that, but I never told her about it because that doesn't make any sense to me to tell someone, hey, there are other people who want me. Well, this is, but that's that's difficult. A lot of that also goes into intent. You know, it's like, why are you telling me that? Because this is, and this is, I can't see any other intent, but. Trying to shake the foundations of the of the relationship and make but you that's jealous, me. Or... right? But that's me, and you and Karen doing that is completely different because you guys are made up different psychologically and emotionally. Exactly. Yeah. Well, part of it is like, is that you know, like, are you trying to make me jealous right. because you don't feel that I, you know, like attractive enough? Are you trying to shake me up and make me insecure? Are you trying? Are you just telling me this thing happened? Right. You know, like, because um, part of it is like, if you have a boss who's continuing trying to sh- set you up, then my question would be, why are you not shutting down that boss? You're right. You know, why is this continuing? Which is, of course, what in the end was the truth of the matter was that she never felt 100% like she was committed to me in our relationship and could give me that commitment that I was looking for. So she so she allowed these things to exist. And she always couched it in like, well, I'm not going to tell my boss not to do it. And it's like, well, no, yeah, you, should. If you're you in a fucking re- should, you know, and you're so you're in a relationship. You're right. Exactly. And it was <laughs> because she was looking for a way out. And when she found her way out, she took it. And that's, and that's, you know, and that left me pretty damaged afterwards that I'm just now over the last couple of months, finally in a place of feeling myself again, attractive, feeling myself uh, as a potential partner for someone, as a good potential partner for somebody. But I had to get over that because I had allowed that to infiltrate so much. And it was because I thought this person was my A to Z and there was something wrong with me. Right. Well, that's, that's interesting. I never thought about that, but the, that's actually true. If you think have the A to Z mindset, this person is everything and there's a problem. Well, the problem must be you. Yeah, exactly. That's the danger of the the thought pattern. Yeah. I mean, the thing like that I've really, you know, in 20, 30 years of forcing myself to think about these things, because I'm a very logical person and I want to believe that everyone behaves logically. And what has taken me so long is to go, not only does everyone not behave logically, but I don't. Yeah. You know, I mean, I am very logical in my thinking, but there's all sorts of things that I do that there are reasons that like I have, you know, rationalized, I've come up with a logical explanation of why I did this behavior, but that might not be why I did that behavior. And that people do things that are, it's it's what, so in acting, you know, about these terms, the objective and super objective, right? And an objective for those of you who don't know is, um, this is what I want in this scene. Mm -hmm. So I want to get the gun. That's my objective. And the super objective is the thing I want in the whole story. Mm-hmm. So I want to uh, become famous or whatever it is. And one of the things I always ask my writing classes, and this will get to a point. You no, know, no, I, it's um, actually, yeah. uh, is 
when I talk to my students is, is it possible that someone's objective could be in direct opposition to their super objective? So mm -hmm. the thing that they want within the scene is exactly works cross purposes to the thing they actually want in their life. <laughs> and a lot of them say, no, that's not possible. It's like, no, that is possible. Yeah. It happens all the time. We constantly do things that are self-destructive or, or, or like our ego needs us to do this thing. And we just watched, again, we just watched Citizen Kane. Yep. It's a perfect example of someone who is continually working against mm -hmm. their own super objective. Their super objective was to be president and to be this really important person. And then he's doing all these self-destructive things, right. you know, and humans do that stuff all the time right and you hear this theory that if you allow yourself to hook up or have one night stands or pick up people in bars and then claim you're looking for a relationship you're doing the self-destructive impulse that may keep you from finding a relationship right. if you stopped yourself from doing those things and only focused on finding people you wanted to be in a relationship with then you might achieve your super objective more right. quickly than you would uh focusing on what's in front of you uh, and so that's an interesting theory. Like I have a couple of friends who really believe that. I don't know if I 100% subscribe to it, but that's certainly a theory that is out there and being taught by people who are relationship experts. Well, you remember my chemicals that I was talking about? Yeah, yeah. And that the guy, when he has sex, that chemical drops yeah. down. So what happens is, is the, the chemical that keeps you in the relationship is this companionship mm -hmm. sort of long-term one. That builds up fairly slowly in a guy, mm -hmm. builds up fairly quickly in a woman. This is, again, huge generalizations about right. people, but that ten right. tends to be how we work chemically. If you have the one-night stand, you're not going to have the time to build up the other chemical. Right. So the key is that to not actually have sex for a while is in order to have that that first chemical stay mm -hmm. up there while the companionship builds up. So when you finally have sex that does it and the other one drops down, right. you have something else that's replaced it. Yeah. And I think that's what was inherently powerful about the situation with that girl, because we spent a year and a half. That's right. Yeah. Building our uh, relationship. Right. While she was ending her marriage, we would have conversations on the phone. We would send emails to each other. We would do, we would have these conversations on the phone where we would have essentially phone sex and they were, that's how we built our relationship through that without physical interaction. And it wasn't until a year and a half into the situation that we finally had a physical, or a year into the situation, a year and a year and a half into the actual physical interaction that we started to have that stuff, but we had built all that up ahead of time so that when it happened, it was actually pretty glorious. Of course, yeah. And so, and for a while until things started to fall apart because of the guilt and everything that she felt about it and all that. But like all of, but initially that was how we built it. So yes, and that's why I stuck around as long as I did. Because you built up all I that had, stuff. You're right. I had built up the companionship side of it so much. I had valued that almost that when we were, weren't having sex for three or four months at a time, I didn't really, it didn't really bother me. Or the fact that we didn't even sleep in the same bed together for eight months of the, uh, the last eight months of our relationship, it didn't bother me because she was still in my house. We still had uh, companionship and it was still there. And even though it was difficult at times to make it work, the companionship was so solid right. for me that I could deal, I could, I could forgive the other stuff in the long run or, uh, you well, know. But this is how, is but that eventually, there's, there's, there's a certain point, there's a certain point where the balance is unbalanced. Which is what happened. Yeah. I mean, like, you're always going to be balancing positive and negatives. Sure. And then there's a certain point, it's like, no, we've gone too far. Yes. And knowing when that too far is. Yeah. And by the way, I don't know if you remember, but the actual thing that we fought about, because you kept saying that she was A to Z. And I yeah. said, she can't be, she's married. Right. You know, that was the thing, you know, it's like, if she had everything, she would not have a husband. Right. That's what you got so mad at. Well, and because I, because she was ending the marriage and yeah. she was divorcing him. 
But you ended up being right because she stayed, because at that time she was telling me, I'm out of this relationship, I'm going to divorce him. And then I found out she had been lying to me about a number of things, uh, including that she was still having sex with him when she told him she wasn't, including that she had told him she wanted to divorce, but had started going into marriage therapy with him right? uh, and essentially lied to him. That so she was playing both sides, yeah, because she was so incredibly insecure, and, and she needed, was telling you one story, she was telling me and one story, a different story, right, right, and yeah. and and she may have been thinking when she was telling me the story that she was uh, telling me what she really thought or what she really wanted to do, but behind closed doors she was doing something else right. because she was trying to hedge her bets because she was afraid to make a decision, a strong decision, and break out of it. So. But what we what we fought about it because you were right, and I didn't want well, to admit it. We, but I was also wrong because I I don't think I've ever. It's one of those moments in life where I said a thing and saw the words go out of my mouth <laughs> like a thought balloon, and I wanted to reach up because it was so insensitive at the yeah. time that I said it and the way that I said it, yeah. and it was public, and it was just it, it was so rude. I will and you acquiesce. Were absolutely right to be angry at me. I will acquiesce that I was that you were right, but I will also say that you, the way you did it, it was yeah. awful. I, awful. Yeah, and yeah, I felt no, it was, I, I felt it, and I remember, I remember just like in that moment, just like what did I just do? <laughs> like it was just terrible. Yeah, and you called me on the way home. I remember I, yeah. that you called me because I was really mad at you, and I I knew it. Yeah, I moved because we were all so. there with a group of us. We were yeah. just there talking, and I moved yeah. on to somebody else or another group. And yeah, I think I wrote it. you an email. I yes. think I wrote you an email when I got home, yeah. just saying like that was terrible, and I shouldn't have said that. Which I really appreciated. You know, well, because, you know, look, a lot of people don't. Look, when I, I mean, well, it's funny. I mean, having come off, I think that was right in the time where I was coming off the horribleness of the end of one of my friendships. Oh, and I, I became determined after that that like if there, if I'm feeling a thing, that I'm not going to let things fester. Like right. I'm gonna, you know, I might, I still have to stew and take my time to think mm-hmm. about it, but I'm not gonna. And particularly if I've done something wrong or hurt somebody, yeah, I'm gonna apologize. You know what I mean? Because that's not. I don't want to hurt you. Right, like that's right. not how not your inherent nature. No, I, 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 yeah, I, I want, yeah, and it's you know, and you could feel it. Like mm-hmm. that's just just terrible to feel that you've hurt someone that you care about. Right. Yeah. But it's, you weren't the only one, and that's want to be clear. You weren't the only one that was constantly telling me this is not the right situation. Well, this it was a it was clearly a fraught situation. Yeah. Yeah. Probably well, and the thing did. too, like, and and I know this from other relationships that I've had, which yeah. is that, and and definitely with Karen, is that you take on a certain role based on the situation that you're in. Yeah. So you took on the role of supportive person mm-hmm. during this horrible time in her life. Mm-hmm. And in that role, you're getting all this good juice because you were the the rock and the piece of sanity and all this stuff mm-hmm. for her. And that warped the relationship for when she was now without that guy. Right. You know, because it now how do you, you know, and what happened with Karen and I, I spent two plus years pursuing her yeah so i was always in the weak position and she was always in the powerful position and and i kind of put her up on a pedestal and then when we started dating those roles really swapped yeah and then suddenly i felt powerful and she and it was and she became really dependent and it and then she wasn't as attractive to me Mm -hmm. and then i broke up with her you know, and then and then she just completely fell apart, and um, because she at that point she was in love with me, and it wasn't until she said essentially "fuck you" to me after we had broken up and said, "Well, we're not going to date," then I'm going to go somewhere else. That she suddenly was attractive to me again, right, right. naturally. And this goes to the, like I said, you know, we're crazy. Yeah, is that and and I think because we went through this power dynamic where I was so had no power yeah. to then I had all the power to then she said, fuck you that we ended up when we got back together yeah. in a more even power dynamic, which was healthier. The scales were balanced. Yeah. yeah. 
that and it's but that's hard because what you, what you establish early on can be things that haunt you for years and years and years. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's that's what you have to come to terms with yourself in the situations and confront them. Because a lot of people will stay in the unhappy balance uh, imbalance rather unhappy imbalance for a long time because of their fear of being alone or their fear of starting over again with someone new or being or what they term getting back out there in, right. in the in the ter- so you say oh, it's terrible to date in your 30s and 40s sure but i would rather be single trying to date and find the right person than be in a terrible relationship absolutely as i was i would never ever want to be in what i was in before uh, because it can be more debilitating than being alone. And I think I'm gift. I'm, I'm blessed in the way that we have 70 friends. Right. If I die, well, I we roll with 70 people. Well, I don't, know, 70, I don't right. know if I have 70 friends. Well, fair. But like, uh, I know that if I die, I won't be alone. Right. And so Absolutely. that's, that's the thing that some, a lot of people fear about, like they'll get in relationships because they don't want to die alone, but I, don't, I will never have that problem. And right. so that's the, the thing. You would have to piss a lot of us yeah, off. I mean, a lot at once. <laughs> at once. <laughs> at once, right. Well, and the other thing, and maybe this is a good time to bring it full circle, <laughs> yeah. that really had never occurred to me until this moment, oh. which is stupid, but it's so obvious, is that in thinking about your partner and how they are not going to be A to Z, mm-hmm. we have to remember that we are not A to Z. Absolutely. That we are a mixed bag of yes. positives and negatives, and that we have great things, and we can provide mm-hmm. many things for our partners, but we will never actually be all things that our partner needs. Mm-hmm. You know, that we, and that, you know, and to understand like, oh, what is this other person's needs and how can I grow to help them right. and also allow them to grow and do their thing that they have to do for themselves that maybe I can't provide, yeah. you know, that's another sort of level of maturity. Well, I think I, what I learned coming out of the relationship is that, is that you, you're not going to be able to be all things to one person. No. You can, because that becomes codependency. Right. What you want to be is constantly striving to be as supportive and understanding of this person as possible without losing yourself in the relationship. Like that's really important, maintaining who you are and then seeing what they need and being the really good ones are always a step ahead of their partner. Like, oh, she called and said she was really frustrated at work. You know what? I'm a, when she comes home, I'm going to have a bath ready for her. Or I'm going right. to take her out to dinner at a certain place she really likes to take her. Those are things that you do. And then she does the same thing for you. Like, oh, I'm going right. to, you know, he's going to go out. I'm going to call his friends and I'm going to set him up to go out with his boys tonight because he needs a night out for the fucking guys. Those are those things that you do, you know, and I think that's important to, to learn. And that, because you'll never be A to Z, but you can strive to be A to Z. And that's the goal of a successful relationship. Right. I think. There's well, a- or or accept the fact that they're going to find something somewhere else. Yeah. You know, it's like there are mm-hmm. things that uh, I don't like dancing. Karen likes to go dancing. And if someone calls up and says, right. hey, we're going to go dancing. I'm like, go out and have fun. Yep. Have a great time. I'll take care of the kid. Yeah. And, you know, we've sort of learned there's some things where she's going to be supportive of me and come do something she doesn't like so much. And I'll do the same. Right. And there's some things where we'll go. Go have the, I'm really glad you have the relationship mm-hmm. with this person. They can provide uh, F that yeah. I do not have. But the inherent trust of your relationship is so rock solid that you can do that. And well, that's the pe- key. And some people yeah. don't have that. So yeah. No, it's true. Yeah. yeah. All right. So that is the, that is the A to Z theory. It doesn't have a lot to do with film no. uh, or cinematography or editing or anything well, like that. I think it does because we see that in relationships in the films we watch. No question. That the, the A to Z stuff doesn't always get yeah. met. Um, and uh, so if you, I would love to hear what you think of this theory. Um, or if you have your own theories. Maybe you have your own theories. Right. Uh, you could, of course, uh, post this uh, in comments on this uh, post in Patreon. You can reach out to me at SR Morris on Twitter. John, where can they reach you? At the Roca says, R-O-C-H-A on Twitter and on Instagram. 
And uh, thank you again for all your support on Patreon. Yes, it makes thank a you. Huge difference in us doing the show, and uh, we'll try to do more. We we I don't feel like we've done enough of these audio things. Oh, we're gonna try to do more of them in 2018 in our copious free time. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> so if there are other questions you have or things you'd like to talk us uh, about on Patreon, please let us know. Definitely. And that's it for this week. We'll see you next time on the Cinephiles. Hello and welcome to another edition of Cinephile Shorts. This suggestion comes from Spencer Kohnhofen. I hope I pronounced that right, Spencer. And this is what he wrote. He wrote, I'd love to hear you guys talk about Pixar. I'd love to hear you guys... I'd love to... So would I. So would I. Let's talk about Pixar. I guess now I have to leave that in. It's always the it's the mess ups that are funny that I have to leave in. In fact, oh, there's, yeah. there's one in Hunt for Red October that I spent. There's one horrible mistake in Hunt for Red October where I called oh, no. the, the submarine a helicopter, um, <laughs> and I literally this is what I literally did. I know I know Spencer. I'm, I'm digressing from your 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 topic, but but here's literally what I did. So I said so I was talking about the special effects, and I said that they they showed the helicopter going through the smoke when it was, in fact it was a submarine. I spent 20 minutes trying to find me saying the word submarine that matched the vocal <laughs> tone of the helicopter and so I could f- cut it in and not have that mistake be there. And after 15 minutes, I couldn't find one. And I was like, damn it, I just have to leave this horrible mistake in. Um, damn it, Jim. And the other one was I couldn't say the word... I don't remember. There's a word I couldn't say. And then it ended up being funny, so I left it in. So the, wow. <laughs> what Spencer actually wants us to talk about is not Pixar... <laughs> but his picks are. And he says they largely define this era of modern 3D animation. And I would love to hear your thoughts about Pixar as a whole, as well as their individual movies. Um, yeah. I like Pixar as a whole, and mm-hmm. I like most of their individual movies. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, well, good. All right. Well, thanks for listening, Th- everybody. Thanks a lot. Uh, uh, no. <laughs> no, I would agree. I mean, Pixar has just revolutionized animation for people like me who didn't go and see a bunch of animated films anyway. Like, I, I'm not like our friend Michael Vogel who goes to see anything animated and what have you. For me, it has to have a certain kind of adult vibe to it or a more mature approach to subject material. No matter what it's about, the approach has to feel a little more adult or mature for me to go and enjoy it a majority of the time. And Pixar has certainly done that from the beginning because Toy Story is about the idea of you know, being replaced by someone who is shinier and flashier and newer and younger and what you have to confront within yourself about that and what stories and narratives you make up in your mind that might not actually be happening as a result of this and how you have to find your way back to who you are and embracing who you are and that has value as well. Uh, And then you look at something like Finding Nemo, which is about father-son relationships. You look at uh, Inside Out, which is about a daughter relationship uh, maturing into and dealing with her emotions and all of that goes into it. Um, and then you look at something like Up, which has an older man losing his wife at the tail end of his life and how he has to find a way back to heal from that loss and embrace his life again and find new hope. So there's so much. Even Ratatouille is about like this idea of following your dreams, even though everyone else tells you you're not good enough. And so there's so much that is fantastic amongst these Pixar animated films and their look and design and animation is revolutionary i i'm sitting here struggling with like how to put my thoughts about pixar in order because 
I don't know if there's a better run of films from any director, studio, filmmaker ever in the history of movies. Nothing rivals Pixar. And even, I would say, I mean, I remember for years, and you and I had these conversations of like, when is Pixar going to have a miss? And I don't think they really, I mean, like there were some movies that were maybe less great. You know, like I thought Cars was less great, but it's still a good movie. Yeah, sure. It's not till you Mm -hmm. get to like Cars 2 and The Good Dinosaur that they even have a miss. And then, you know, you have the thought of like, Oh, okay, maybe Pixar's lost their mojo and John Lasseter is too stretched now that he's over at Disney and the you know, the 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 guy uh Joe Ramph, I think that's name, who did who yeah. died in the car accident. And like, okay, maybe that maybe this is gonna be the end. But then you get a whole bunch of great movies since then. You know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. like I think the culture of Pixar, the style of films they make is and and and, and to go back to what your original point is, is that if you having watched a lot of animated movies now that I have an eight year old, you know, in the last many years, um, Pixar does not talk down to kids. They are in the business yeah. of making great films. They are not in the business of making kid films. And when you watch a right. whole bunch of these other ones, and some of them are good, they're always like what the way you can really tell is they're always going for the joke. Even if the yep. joke is kind of off the line of the story. If they, and they and it's you know they want to make a seven year old laugh. That's their goal, mm-hmm. and that is not Pixar's goal. Although Pixar will make yeah. a seven year old laugh, they totally have that. But their stories yeah. are complicated and heavy, and make mm-hmm. me cry. I mean, I have cried more consistently in Pixar movies than just about anything else. You know, I mean, like Up, we've talked about before. That is part of it was what was going on in my life at my at the time. But that is the single most, I was more destroyed by that movie than any other film I've ever seen in my entire life. And that's because, and I know I've talked about it on the show before, but like it's 2010 was the year my dad had been, he'd been diagnosed with ALS. I think, no, it's 2009 maybe. No, it's 2000. Yeah, it's 2009, I think. My dad had been diagnosed with ALS. And so he, my parents had all these plans about them traveling when he retired, and they had to give up all their plans. They were right yeah. in the moment of deciding whether or not they had to move out of the house that they lived in for 30 years because uh, my dad couldn't go up the stairs and what they were going to do. At the same, it was exactly the same time that we found out that Karen and I couldn't have children. So, right. you know, that, oh, that, wow. so we had yeah. our fertility issues. It was our, our dog had just died. Um, and so this is all this stuff about a dog. There's... Um, it, it literally was one of the hardest years of my life. And then, and then in addition, there's things, just little things like uh, at the end of the movie, um, they pin the, the badge on the kids on Russell's uh, merit yeah. badge thing for Boy Scouts. Well, my dad was my scoutmaster and he pinned my Eagle Scout badge on me. You know, and at the yeah. very end of the movie, they go to Fenton's Ice Cream, which is in Oakland, which I used to go to with my family. And so, like, huh. every single thing in that movie was directed at exactly the things I was going through in my life. And the, right. the montage in Up, which I teach in my classes, is three minutes and 40 seconds long. It is one of the mm-hmm. greatest pieces of filmmaking in the history of film, in my opinion. I've never seen anything that would ever come close to the Orson Welles mornings in Citizen Kane. Mm. The, uh, yeah. the, 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 the devolution of that marriage into divorce until I saw that sequence in Up. 
And that speaks volumes about the quality of that film and what it can do to you emotionally. Um, because you're right. I mean, and, and my story is a little bit different than yours in that my dad had passed in 2008, right. you know, right? So I was still knee deep in the process of grieving. And when that sequence was over, I was an absolute mess. And there are still times when I see that movie and see that sequence that I will just cry, just cry by myself or whatever. If I catch it on, on TV or whatever, uh, I will just cry by myself because it's still... Uh, affects you and I know a few people a, a few uh, young women or a few, sorry a few uh, women I've spoken to in this sphere of criticism and punditry who constantly speak about how Inside Out was the first time they felt seen by an animated movie as their teenage years their uh, the things they struggled with it really got them uh, and they get real emotional when they watch Inside Out, you know. So it, it, that's the gift of these movies. Because you're right, there are animated studios that are just there creating stuff to distract kids, so parents can like have a break. Yeah, Pixar is not that. I mean, The Good Dinosaur I think was the closest they ever came to something like that. But Pixar is not usually that, and so that's what kind of elevates them in the genre, in my opinion, to classics level of the best of whatever Disney's ever produced. Well, on the other side, hundred percent. And just just to go back to Inside Out for a moment, mm, that mo- mm. that movie, I would say, I think it's a really good movie. I think that movie yep. is more brilliant than it is good. And this is what I this is what I mean by that. Ooh, which is that interesting. I think because I mean, you know me, I'm fascinated by the brain and how the brain works, and human psychology, and philosophy, and the evolution of psychology, and also things sure. like addiction and psychological trauma and the result of trauma and all those things is that the construction of inside out in terms of how it breaks down the brain and how it works and the ability Mm. to create a metaphor for that is so unbelievably brilliant you know like their way of understand and of course it isn't this isn't really how your brain works of course but as a metaphor for thinking about the brain, it is amazing. And I think, and it's yeah. funny, I actually think Up and Inside Out are similar in the sense that I actually don't think all of Up is the best Pixar movie. I think mm. the things that, you know, that montage is one of the greatest things ever made. I don't think Inside yeah. Out is the greatest Pixar movie, but the the ideas of it and the construction of it, the way it's put together is amazing. And the one moment that makes you cry, man... That yep. is again Pixar, and that one I I didn't see it coming. It is so yeah. obvious that that should have it's oh. perfectly set up, and when it happens, yeah. I just and and there's the moment, and this is what's so good in that film, because you realize what's about to happen the moment before it happens, and the moment yep. you realize that, you go, oh no, and yes, it, and it exactly. has to happen, and it's right that it happens, and it's so right, and and I think again. For a six-year-old or a ten-year-old watching that, that's it's neat. For a grown-up watching yeah. it, it is huh. it'll destroy you. You know, it's devastating. Yeah, um, yeah I, I think um, one of the great things about Pixar is everyone thinks of it as this warm, fuzzy place, but it's it actually this is a tough place. The, yep. the, the, your ideas go up against scrutiny and gets criticized and broken down and changed and they fight and fight and fight until they make a really, really good movie. That's the culture yeah. of Pixar. Um, yeah, and the culture of Pixar is also 
an understanding culture, a patient culture. Yes. Um, that's also what the exchange is. Yes, your ideas will be challenged and explored and cut into pieces and and you'll have to defend it and fight for it and you'll have to prove it and then you'll also have to be malleable enough to hear the criticism and see if it has value to affect your overall product. But what they do also is if you need time to create this, once you've been assigned this thing or you've pitched this thing, they will give you time. I remember when I went for the set visit there at Emeryville, they did the short. They, they We spoke with the director who did the short about the Indian uh, gods and that, that right, short right. that was in front of the good dinosaur. He said they gave him an entire year. They sent him away for an entire year, and he spent that year like traveling to India and reading all these books and doing all this stuff and talking to his dad and his family who were from India and all this. So they gave him time to explore and create and and uh, 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 bring this all back and then pitch. And that's just for a short, for God's sake. So you do get, like Steve said, you do have to kind of you know endure that kind of thing, but it is because... Like coal, when you squeeze it hard enough, it produces a diamond. They're trying to create diamonds with the things that they put out because they set such a high level from the beginning that everything else has to kind of meet that level or the expectation of people is to meet that level. Like Onward, which just dropped, I thoroughly enjoyed Onward very much. But it is not at the artistic level as some of their other films, but the emotional content is just as powerful. Yeah, I, 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 yeah. Onward is not my favorite, but there's that moment where there's a thing that happens where yep. I go, "Oh, this is what this yeah. movie is about," and it's really great, right? You know, ba- it is. Ba- back to your point, um, I, and, I, and I'm really glad you said it, which is that yes, it is a harsh place, but it is also an incredibly supportive place because I think mm-hmm. the thing that they knew, uh, Ed Catmull and John Lasseter in founding Pixar, is that they knew that their most important resource was the talented people that were working at Pixar. Um, yeah. and, and, and so do what they did was um, allow, give those people the support to grow as artists. And this relates, I really think that they studied Walt Disney because one of the things that Walt Disney, I mean, obviously they studied Disney. Lasseter was a Disney animator. That's where a bunch of them came out of and the CalArts program where they worked under the eight old yeah. men and all that stuff. So of course they studied Disney. That's a, that's a ridiculous statement. But, but, the, but the specific thing I wanted to say is that one of the things Disney did was that he continually had education for all of the people that were working under him. So they would have mm. life figure drawings. They would, they would film, like if they knew something was coming up in their next film, they would film, get actual film of it to study the way fabric moved, to study the way these animals moved, to study, they yeah. would have uh, workshops on the technology because what Disney wanted was to continually improve the art form. And you could see right. exactly that stuff with Pixar. Like one of the things they always do, you know, they're all the great shorts that come out before the Pixar movies. And what they've done lately is just what you've described, which is to give a short to a young talent to help them come up. Like this is the, we're molding our future directors. The other thing they do is they push technology. So before Nemo, they knew they had to do water and water was really hard. So they do a short that has water in it. Before um, Incredibles, they knew how to, they had to do humans. And so they did ones, a short where they did humans, which are really hard to animate. So, right. so, so they're continually trying to push the process and they have this thing where 
and we, we talked about this when we did The Incredibles, that the creative side is continually pushing the technological side, and the technological yeah. side is continually pushing the creative side. And that also is fostering a lot of advancement and creativity. Yep, yep, absolutely. And that's where the gift comes, is this constant desire to match what has come before. And, you know, and they are never satisfied. And that speaks volumes to success. You're never satisfied, you know. Um, and I love that. And and you get great voice performances and you get great actors who want to come and create these characters and work with these animators to create these characters and leave a legacy in Pixar uh, in so many ways, you know. And um, we're not going to get into the Lasseter thing because that's not part of the question. Right. So the, the question is, what is the anim- – What is it? and that's the legacy, I think, of Pixar. And, uh, and we'll see now as it transitions out of the Lasseter era into the Pete Doctor era, into these other eras, the people who are running it, and if they'll be able to match the quality of what had come before, we shall see. And I think, Steve, you make a great point. This run – Hardly any studio or creator has ever had a run like this. Maybe Tarantino to a degree, maybe Billy Wilder to a degree, but Pixar really consistently owned it for quite some time. So we'll see if they can continue it. Yeah. Um, um, two two last things I wanted to say. The the first sure, is sure. Uh, if you want to know about Pixar, the book Creativity Inc. is not only an unbelievable book written by Ed Catmull, the founder of Pixar, but it is it is one of the best books about managing the creative process that I've ever read. In fact, I'm mm. kind of going, man, I should read that again. Like it's so it's so good. <laughs> There's so much to learn there. And the other thing that I wanted to say is that there's uh there's two different ways, two general ways that pro- projects get developed in Hollywood. One way is that the executive at the studio says, I want a blank. I want something that goes in my superhero space or I want something that goes in the horror right. space or I want something that you know targets this uh, demographic with this kind of character. And then they basically challenge creators to come in and pitch projects like that until you find one that fits that idea. And that, and that right. then the executive giving notes is constantly criticizing or molding or firing the writer or firing the creative team and bringing in new people to to please an external idea like i want the audience to go to be this group of people the other approach is look for really talented creative people and see what they want to do and pixar is so much more the latter and i think that's part of because if no studio executive would say, yeah, we're going to do a kid's movie about an old guy who attaches a bunch of balloons to his house. It's like, <laughs> or, or we're going to do a kid's movie about a rat who wants to cook. Or we're going to do a kid's movie yeah. about, you know, inside a girl's, a young girl's brain. Like no executive yeah. would ask for that. Only super creative people would come up with these ideas. And then, yeah. and then Pixar has been smart enough to, to go, yeah, follow that. Let's see where that goes. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. Um, so uh, thank you um, very, very much for the question. We really appreciate it, Spencer. The, the Pixar is something, honestly, we could talk for a long time. We've only done one Pixar movie, which was The Incredibles. Yeah. Um, I, I do another one. There's so many I want to do on the cinephiles. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So sta- I'm down. Yeah, stay tuned. Hopefully we'll have more uh, Pixar movies coming down the pike, and we'll definitely see you next time on Cinephile Shorts. Hello, patrons, and welcome to another edition of Cinephile Shorts. My name is Steve Morris. I don't know why I introduced myself. You guys all know who we are. This is Patreon. Force a habit. Um, so, so this has come up uh, before, which is that sometimes we record an episode, and 
And while I'm editing it, of course, I have more time to think about what's going on and a new thought occurs to me. And this is a thought about Field of Dreams, which, by the way, I'm really proud of those episodes. I think yeah. they came out really well. I, I'm really I happy. think so, too. Yeah, I th- I'm really happy with those. Um, and here's the thought I had while I was editing is I went, OK, we talked about Amy Madigan's character, Annie, and that she's just this right. amazing wife. And here her husband walks in with just this ridiculously crazy notion, which will potentially ruin their finances. And she says, he says, do you think I'm crazy? And she says, yes. But if you really feel you have to do this, then you should do it. And throughout the whole movie, even right up to the moment that they're going to be financially ruined, she believes in his dream. And this is the thought that occurred to me. Is this movie, this situation, this marriage is the exact opposite of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Where... Yeah, Richard Dreyfus comes to Terry Gar, and he has this feeling, this thing that's really important. And she says, "You're crazy. You're embarrassing me. Stop doing it." And the and the and the wed, and the marriage shatters. I right. just was thinking about they're like the because really, there's no reason for Annie to believe Kevin Costner any more than Terry Gar should believe uh, Richard Dreyfus. Right. Right. There's even less. Yeah. Uh possibility for her to believe in kevin costner because it's financially ruining them and destroying the potential of them being able to keep the house uh and she has all this pressure from her family terry gar doesn't have this pressure from her sister or from her brother or mother and father coming into the situation her pressure is the embarrassed the suburban mom pressure of everyone else around them making fun of them uh, and she wanted a perfect life, a perfect home, uh, and he's ruining that by pursuing this obsession with trying to figure out why he's being drawn to this thing. And it's, you're right. And of course, the easy answer is because both having both characters do what they do in each of their respective films helps push the overall storyline to its fruition, right? Close Encounters of the Third Kind is not supposed to end with this, we want to have a catch dad moment and everyone is happy. It's supposed to end in a different way where this guy goes even further into his exploration going on the ship. So it's two different approaches, uh, but both of them are written in a way to uh, kind of either eliminate the obstacles or make the obstacles easier to overcome, depending on which movie we're talking about. Well, and I think, too, I mean, actually, uh, Annie has less to go on for another reason, is that at least with Richard Dreyfuss's character, there Mm -hmm. is this huge power outage. And there are all these other people who say they saw the UFO because when right, they when right. they go out that night, because uh, he gets everyone out of bed and they go out to this place, and there are a whole bunch of other people waiting for the aliens to come back. And right. Richard Dreyfus is sunburned in the middle of the night. Yeah. So there's actually physical evidence in Close Encounters yeah. where there isn't any evidence at all in Field of Dreams. And right. and the the other thing I think is that, you know. The Terry Gar marriage is a terrible marriage. They it shouldn't be marriage. married. And the yeah. and the thing I was thinking about is, well, Steven Spielberg's the child of divorce. He grew up with parents that fought. He grew up with yeah. a, a, a marriage, a world of family where everything fell apart. And so that's right. what that movie is exploring, you know? Right. 
Uh, in in the book, how well, how is Annie in the book compared to how she is in the movie? Is she just as supportive in the book as she is in the movie? So I, she's supportive, but not as well developed. I would say. Ah, uh, okay. Because the whole hippie thing isn't there because the book is you know ten years earlier, so they're not right, Berkeley right. hippies. And the scene of her going up against Beulah that's not in the book because the character is J.D. Salinger and they don't have to introduce mm-hmm. this character of Terrence Mann. So she's, she's less right. filled out, I think. Um, and, okay. I, I, and I was just thinking about, I, I remember when we did the podcast with Mance on Close Encounters and we were mm-hmm. talking about the moment where he's in the shower, you know, and he's yeah. in his clothes and he, and, he, and, and Dreyfus is so good in the scene and he says, you know, I'm yeah. really scared. I'm really scared right now. And please, and it even goes like, I think, please, can you hold me? Can you just be right. with me? And she yells at him and walks away. Yeah. And to me, that is just one of the most brutal rejections I can think of in film. You know? <laughs> because to me, yeah. I, mean, I don't care. I mean, it's like, you know, if, if you and I were somewhere and you went into the shower with your clothes on, and then you said, I'm really scared, Steve, hold me, I would hold you. You know what I mean? Oh, thank you, Steve. <laughs> like, well, this is what you do. I mean, this person is in need. Like, and, and, you yeah. know, particularly if that person's your spouse. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, because even if even if he is going having having a mental breakdown, even if he's completely crazy, he's still suffering. Yeah, you know, it, it, she's yeah, wh- she's awful. Uh, and, she d- and to be fair, she isn't awful through like at the beginning. She's trying to figure out what's happening because she does go to that meeting with him. To kind of like figure, and then when it goes, it crosses some line for her where she can't go back in it, right? She's she's at least cursory somewhat supportive of him initially, and then it gets worse and worse as this obsession gets harder and harder for understand for her to understand, and then she pulls the plug on it, right? But she has to pull the plug on it so that uh, Melora Harden, can, or I'm sorry, Melinda Dillon can come in uh, and essentially be the pseudo replacement for Terry Gar go as they both go after the same thing, right? Her to get her son back, but him to kind of find out the about the aliens. Um, so, I mean, she does too, but it's also understandable. Like how many of us would legitimately believe our significant others and for how long if they started being obsessed with aliens and like pulling up the dirt and the flowers and the plants and doing the mashed potatoes. And then you think about, is your child going to lose respect for his father or for their father rather? You know, there's all kinds of factors that that go into this, but yes, I mean, Terry Gar, they're clearly not a perfect match (laughs) as many. And maybe that's a, you know, kind of a subtle commentary on a lot of these suburban couples in suburban areas that they're, they got married young because that's what you're supposed to do. They thought they were in love, Absolutely. and now they're they're in these loveless marriages with people they shouldn't actually be with, but they're too afraid to divorce because it's too much of a hassle. I, I I totally think that what happening. I think, and again, mm-hmm. it's I don't know. It's two years since we recorded that episode, and I've seen yeah. the movie, but I think it's really fast that Terry Gar is disrespecting him. I think it's, yeah. it, it, I think even when he comes home that night, she's like yeah. not believing him. And, and yeah. you know, it, it, the, 
you know, her, she cares about the neighbors and what people think. And I mean, right. I get, listen, if again, while I would hold you, if you uh, were in the shower and said, Steve, please hold me. If you were at my house and digging things yeah. up and throwing things yeah. through the window, I would also yeah. probably have to have you restrained, you know, because, <laughs> exactly. well, because I would go, I, I, because I, I, I wouldn't probably believe you. Like, if, like, like, like if Karen said, you know what, we have to, build an ice skating rink in our backyard so you know i don't know sonia henning or something could come back and, and <laughs> skate um by the way never start an analogy unless you have the, all the details in your head I, by the way sonia henning's a nice save so i uh, give you the, the analogy um, but but i would definitely not let her do it i would go yeah. i i wouldn't be as understanding as annie i'd be like clearly you're suffering from a mental breakdown we're going to get you some professional help you know um yeah but i wouldn't uh, say she was a horrible person and scream at her you know right 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 um you'd want to get her help yeah well and, you know in close encounters is a much darker movie i mean yeah. just about everything is darker than field of dreams i think it might be among the least dark films i can think of um <laughs> Uh, yeah. Anyway, that was that was the thought that occurred to me. I, I like to have an extra chance to to give one more idea. Uh, I like that these two films are connected in that way. It's an interesting thing to explore. Two different families. Um, one, but then again, one in the suburbs, one out in the in the you know kind of in the uh, more rural areas. Right. But still, no less pressure on each of them because when you know when they start going into town, costing them you know, and she gets called out by Beulah at the meeting. So clearly people know and people have been talking. So right. although one rural, one suburban, still feeling the neighborhood pressure of the uh, lunacy of what each of their men are doing. And to be fair, though, I want to make this clear just to balance this out. It isn't like Dreyfus is the easiest guy to get to like and love oh, and whatever. Oh no. I mean, he seems from the beginning when he's out there picking out the movie yeah. uh, for the kids, he seems completely disinterested in his children. So I, I, I think this guy... Hasn't been happy in that marriage for quite some time. And maybe she suspected it, too. Well, and frankly, he, he, he at a moment's notice, without sending a, a letter to his kids or calling them, just gets yeah. on an alien spaceship and leaves Earth potentially forever, you know? <laughs> That's true. That's true. You know, so, yeah, as, yeah. he is not uh, number one dad of the year. Uh, right. Dreyfus. Um, anyway, that was the thought that came up. Uh, patrons, as always, thank you so much for your support. It really, it literally helps keep the cinephiles going. Uh, and I think we'll be back next time with another cinephile short. Hi, everyone. What you are about to hear is a little bit different. See, a few days ago, John and I got on a Zoom call to record this week's short. But before we could get going, we got into a really great conversation about some of the things both of us are struggling with. Halfway through, I decided to hit record. This is the result. It hasn't happened yet. And I, he, the guy being interviewed, I think it was one of the players, one of the lesser players, and he said, I asked him one time, how come you don't worry about these things? And he goes, how can I worry about a shot I haven't taken yet? And I, like, my mind was like, <clears throat> like, it just was like, yeah, why be so afraid of missing when you have no idea what's going to happen, so play in the moment. And so I just kind of, it kind of like, I don't know, it just kind of crept into my head. So now I'm starting to, I'm looking for books that can help me live in the present constantly and not worry about the future or 
if people are going to like anything or if I'm going to win or lose, like all of that. I want to throw it all away and just be like, okay, focus on the present. How do I stay in the present and not veer out of that lane and still plan for the future, but just how do I stay in the present, you know? So I hit record about two minutes ago. <laughs> okay. Because I thought what you were saying was so great and we don't have to do anything with it. It's totally okay. up to you. But I actually think this is a great conversation if you want to keep going. And sure. As a cinephile it. short. All right. So so uh, everyone who's just tuned in, what you just listened to was John and I were just talking as we do. It's because, you know, yeah. we get together and we talk right before we start a recording. And we were talking about our both of our struggles with, I would say, the the balance between wanting to be liked and fear of not being liked and creating the way who we are being who we are. Right. And that's like a really hard balance to strike. And jo- what John was saying was so interesting to me that I just was like, you know what, this is a great conversation. So, so I, I think about this being the moment thing all the time. Cause yeah, I mean, if you're going to pick who, which one of us is more in the moment more often, I think it's you are way more in the moment than me. <laughs> Maybe that's not true, but that's I, how I, I feel. I think I create my life so I have to constantly be in them, or I'm, I, I have to be confronted with situations to stay in the moment versus, uh, you know, a, I don't know. It's just different. Like your life is constructed in a way you've got your wife, you've got your child, you've got the things you're building. We're doing here on the Cinephiles, the book you're writing, the classes you're teaching. Those are all things that you're in control of for the most part. Not only in control, like you demand it or anything like that, but I'm saying, you know, you're very much like you have a strong say in it, right? I right. put a lot of things out there that I hope people will like, that I hope people will cheer for, that I hope people will watch. And um, so it's a constant battle. It's a constant struggle of like, well, are people going to be into it or not? Like I've done less reviews on my movie channel, bec- on my YouTube channel, because – People say, yes, we want to hear what you think. And then I record it and I think it's not as good as I would like it to be. It's not as good as it's been in the past. And that deters me. The fear of in the fear of like just putting it out there for people to consume and being afraid people will make fun of it, as opposed to and I don't mean that in a childish way. I mean like people won't watch it, people won't think it's that until so it's a matter of like I have a high level or high bar. So I feel like I'm constantly in that trying to force myself to be in the moment. Just create it and put it out there, right? Whereas our shows are consistently great and consistently good. And if there's ever an issue with our shows, it's never the editing. It's oh, it's it's maybe we there's a tangent that maybe the, the fans didn't 100% go along with. But for the most part, it's a pretty great show and people love it. And so I never fear the cinephiles being put out there. I never fear Top 10 being put out there or even the Outlaw Nation show being put out there. It's the one. It's the pre-produced content that I agonize over constantly. That other people seem to do effortlessly, but I am just constantly struggling with my own demons every time I create anything. There, there, I, there's so many things you just said that are interesting, and there's a lot I think to separate out. Is like there's the in the moment versus sort of the pre-planning, controlled, not in the moment stuff. There's the um, yeah. Fear of being judged, which I, both of us, you know, have. That's just right. a normal part of. And then there's also the. Well, I'll put it this way: It's like I, I think a lot of this stems from the fact that you're an actor and I'm a director. You know, right. is that you're in the moment. That's your your best. Yeah. 
as an in-the-moment person. I, I, would, I would argue with the, the idea, and maybe this is true, but you said, you know, some people do this, it's just with ease, these pre-produced things. Right, it seems like. It seems like it, but, but frequently, you know, a lot of the things that we see that look like they were done with ease are because it was really, really hard and they worked really hard to get it. You know, like Michael Jordan looks like he plays with ease. Right, but he's practicing. But, but he's practicing, practicing, practicing. Right. Like the um, and the stand, and it's it's funny too. I was trying to explain to my class once. Maybe this will relate to what you're talking about of of the difference between improv comedy and not improv comedy. Is that when you go to see an improv group and you give them the suggestion that you're okay, you're in an office building and someone wants this and this is the situation, and then they improv and it's hilarious. Part of what you're enjoying is the fact that it's live. Yeah. Is that if someone did that joke and you didn't know it was improv, it actually wouldn't be funny. It would look really shitty. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Is that what you do when you come on Outlaw Nation is different from having to do a pre-produced thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it's like you're live. That is that is what it is. When you tune into a pre-produced thing, the expect set of expectations are really different. Yeah. Um, and, and and for me, like I think it really. Because I actually think some of this insecurity drives me, mm-hmm. you know, is that, oh, yeah. is, is that I felt judged or that I failed or whatever it was, and maybe particularly as an actor, you know, I was, I'm, a, I'm an okay actor. You know, you are a far, far better actor than I am. I can do, the, I can do it within a certain range, but everyone, but everyone else was kind of better. And what I learned was like through the directing thing is the directing thing, I can be in control of doing it again and right. refining it and refining it and refining it. And fo- and then the editing thing, like it's very nice that you say you always feel comfortable with the editing, yeah. but editing doesn't have to happen live. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I, I get to a spot in the cinephiles and I go, shit, I have no idea how I'm going to deal with this. Right. But I'm confident enough now because I've done it for so long that like I'll figure it out. Like there's, I have this piece over here and this piece over here and you and I went on a weird tangent and I really want to take out the weird tangent, but the pieces don't quite fit together. And right. how do I fit And Maybe I can bridge it with a quote or maybe I can skip ahead in some way. And, but it's, it's a thought process of redoing and redoing until I go, all right, now it's working, you know? And, and for me, what, what's what, like my thing is, I like both is that because I'm so fucking in my head all the time Mm -hmm. and because I'm just agonizing over little tiny details, like, is this right? Or is this right? I, and I'm good at that to some degree, you know, in preparing the show or in editing or preparing a class, um, that agonizing over things is part of what I'm good at. Yeah. But I need in the moment shit, you know, that's why I did martial arts for years directing. You have to be in the moment. Right. You prep and prep and prep. But when you're on set, the clock is ticking. There's so much pressure and that you can't, if someone comes up and just says, well, should I do it like this or like this? you got to go like that. Yeah. You know, and then there's a disaster over here and you just got to deal with it. You can't be. And so in those circumstances or when we're recording the cinephiles, I'm actually not fearful. The fear goes away because I have to be in the moment. And the same reason I do martial arts, like in martial arts, you can't, you know, someone's throwing a punch at you, you just have to move. You can't, yeah. you can't think about things. And so getting that, my brain that I'm so fucking trapped in all the time to turn off is so important as a part of my life, you know? Right. And this is what I'm saying to you that I need to learn because last week, look, 
I know. And this is for, for some of you who are listening, maybe you're, you're Schmodown fans. Um, this is what I compete in, right? I no longer go out and do auditions for acting or anything like that. This is, And I might start going back out, to be honest with you, because I just took new headshots. But even then, I won't feel the same way I did 10, 15 years ago. But like something like the Schmodown is such an unknown. And I was facing a guy last week who I've never beaten and who rattles me because he's unknowable. What he knows, he knows. What he doesn't know, you have to discover if he doesn't know it in the course of a match. Like, it just surprises you. So every other match, almost every other match I can walk into and I'm like confident I can get the job done. But every once in a while, my mind will sabotage me if I don't get enough sleep. Yeah. If yeah. I don't, if I, if there's, if there's something I didn't study. So the night before the match, I did, I, I was so confident the day before the match. I was just like skipping through the whole day. Like I'm ready. I'm so ready. I'm ready. And I woke up the next morning and I felt like I didn't get enough sleep. Then I couldn't roll over and get that extra hour or two that levels me. Cause my head kept saying, uh, you know, Oh, you're going to lose. You're going to lose. You're going to lose. You're going to lose. And it just says, and I don't understand how the mind can sabotage you in this way how something you can control, how can the thoughts come in, where does it, where is its source, uh, and how do I deprogram that source from saying negative things over and over again and make it say positive things over and over again, you know? And it's something I talk about in my show is to tell people like, you know, you know, tell, you know inspire yourself, push yourself, find your way through it, take little baby steps towards your ultimate goals because those mean something. But in this situation, I couldn't get myself to level out. I tried going to the mall to walk around, and all I did was thinking about, you should be studying, you should be studying, why aren't you studying, you should be... And then I canceled two of my shows earlier in the week, and I thought to myself, well, I should have done the shows just to take my mind off of it, right? And so I just constantly questioned every decision I made to get myself prepared for the match. And the truth is, I answered almost every question right except for two and still went to four rounds of sudden death before I finally lost. And even when I lost, it wasn't because I didn't know the answer. It's because I didn't write it down legibly enough. And so, but still, I beat myself up because if I had been in a better frame of mind, I think I'd have made a critical decision better in the first round of the match. But because I was so hyped up to try to prove I was settled, I was okay, I was ready, that I didn't just calm myself in some way. And I'd meditated for an hour before the match. I have to, to get myself straight. But I didn't feel that cockiness, that swagger, that that confidence that I can feel going into a match when I feel like I've got this thing handled. And I was mad at myself that I didn't prep myself correctly to get myself in that place mentally. Uh, and so those are those things that I'm like, I want to be okay even if I haven't done that. I want to be okay to walk into a situation and know I got this, you know? And so that's the, the and the reason they persecute it persecutes me is because it's it's a rarity when those moments come up. Yet they seem to be critical moments that I that linger inside me the, to the beat myself moments, up about. The negative, yeah, the negative moments. moments yeah. Okay, I I I think I might be able to help you a little bit, a little bit with this. So the the first the first thing, it just not help you to win the game necessarily, but no, make no. a different way to think about it. I like it, this. Is so first of all, I'm sure you have read this or seen this, is that negative things have like 18 times more power for us than positive things. Yes. Okay, so, so if I told you 17 ways that I think you're awesome and gave you one criticism, 
what would you walk away thinking about? Yeah, it's the criticism, of course. You think about the criticism. So, and, and, and part of this comes from, they believe, from evolution is that the threat of the saber-toothed tiger is so big that you have to deal with, it's way more important than finding, uh, hunting and gathering and finding a little root that you need. Yeah. And so that negative thing is magnified because it's really, really important that we deal with that. But we don't deal with saber-toothed tigers anymore. We le- deal with losing one cl- question in the schmodown. Right. It takes on this big thing. So one thing to think about is what actually happened based on your description of the game, not how you yeah. felt about it, yeah. is that you played an amazing game against your absolutely toughest opponent and only just lost. Yeah. That's what happened. And, which I've never experienced in the Schmodown. Usually I've played, when I've lost, I've played terrible games. Yeah. And, and what you're seeing is the moment that you lost. Yeah. You're beating yourself up for this yes. tiny, tiny percentage and yes. you're not seeing the huge game where you played great. That's the first thing. Second thing is, mm-hmm. is you look at, uh, you know, the idea of being in the zone and you know that yeah. concept. And clearly when you walk in with a swagger, you're in the zone. Yes. You know? And it feels, and sometimes when you and I record a show, we're in the zone. Or sometimes, yeah. you know, they're just moments. Sometimes when I'm teaching, I'm in the fucking zone. I'm in the yeah. groove and everything's working. And that feeling is so great. And what's so weird is, like, I remember I was bowling one day and I'm a totally inconsistent bowler and fairly not, fairly bad. But there was one day where I was just strike after strike. I had four strikes in a row and then a spare and then another strike. And I'm like, right. shit. And the thought I had is bowling is so easy. <laughs> and then the next time I bowled, I bowled like an 88 or something. Right, right. I'm right. going like, I remember that it was easy. Yeah. Why can I not get from here to there? And it's extremely difficult to put yourself back in the zone. And there are a couple of reasons why. There's There's been a lot of research on this lately that's really interesting. The first thing you said something when you, at the very beginning, you said, why is my brain, which is this thing I can control, yeah. why can I not get this stuff? Well, the... The first thing is you can't control your brain. That is not a correct statement. Hmm. And and one of the things to remember, because uh, this is stuff that fascinates me, I read a lot yeah. about it, is that our brain is divided up into a bunch of sections. And the section that we think of as our mind is the frontal cortex. It's one piece of the brain. That's the when you're having thoughts and you're thinking about shit. You're going, oh, I got to do this and I got to do that. That's the frontal cortex working. And that is the part of the brain that is the one thing that is completely different from every other animal. So if you look at apes, their frontal cortex is like a little tiny walnut and ours is really big. Yeah. But here's the circumstance. This is what will happen to me. I'm not going to eat any more French fries. No way. I've made the decision. I've had enough French fries. (laughs) 30 seconds later, there's French fries in my mouth. (laughs) What's happened here? Here, here's is that the, the part of your brain that decides it wants the French fries yeah. is not the frontal cortex. It's a right. different part of your brain. One of the metaphors that someone describes is that it's like a little man riding on a tiger. Mm-hmm. And so the little man's got these reins and he goes, I'm totally steering this tiger. But no, the tiger is steering the little man. And you're using your frontal cortex to explain why you did that thing, to rationalize right. it. Right. Here's a great experiment. This is a scientific experiment. It's one of my favorites of all time. So they did an experiment where they gathered a whole bunch of people and they said, okay, we're going to do this experiment. It's like grad students or something. We're going to give you a number and you need to remember the number. And then one by one, we're going to call you. You're going to walk down the hall. You're going to take a left. You're going to go into the room on your right. And you're going to say your number. And then one goes, okay, I can do that. And to some people, they said, your number is three. And to other people, they said, your number is 874-9632. 
Okay. And so the people that have three are going three. And the people that are going eight seven four nine six three two. I think that's what I said before. Yeah. Eight seven four nine six three two. Eight seven four. And they're trying to remember it. Right. And then they go, okay, you know, John, it's your turn. And you go down the hall, you take the left, and there in front of the door is a person with some food. And the person with some food says, John, thank you so much for doing this experiment. We just wanted to to say thank you. We've got some fresh fruit, some slices of apples, and we got some chocolate cake. What would you like? Overwhelmingly, over 70% more of the people with the big numbers took the chocolate cake, which is actually the experiment. The experiment had nothing to do with memory. Right. And here's why. Is that your frontal cortex is the thing that said that it will decide not to have chocolate cake. Yeah. That is being occupied by trying to remember the big number. And because it's occupied by the trying to remember the big number, the other parts of you, they're going chocolate cake. Yeah. Suddenly go, I want the chocolate cake. How many times in your life have you been stressed out by one thing and it caused a piece of behavior that you didn't want somewhere else? Yes, of course. So, so, the, so, so get rid of the idea that you're actually in control of your brain. And then we go back to this idea of the zone. And the zone is this place. It actually, or, or flow state. That's yeah, what we call state. it now, so yeah. flow state. One of the places they really discover flow state is in uh, extreme sports. Yes. There's a great book on extreme sports and talks about if you compare the trajectory of extreme sports, the trajectory of every other sport, it's insane. The distance between where skateboarders were, motor, motorbike or snowboard or whatever, was 15 years ago. Yeah. They're doing things that were unimaginable then. And whereas, whereas a sprinter is only, you know, 1% faster than they were 20 years ago yeah, or something like that. Well, part of it is, is when you do these dangerous things, it shuts down the frontal cortex. The frontal cortex can't operate at those speeds. So there's a martial arts teacher, one of my favorites, Walter Murius, and his quote is, feeling is faster than thinking. Is that when you're in a physical thing, you're playing a basketball game, you can't think of, I'm going to move my hand three inches higher to do this and this and this. Right. The variables are too complicated. And so part of what you have to do is not, and this is why meditating is a smart thing, yeah. is you have to shut off your frontal cortex in order to get into flow state, in order to perform at your top level. Right. And that's why athletes and all sorts of competitors have shit that they do that's weird mm -hmm. before the match. And they didn't know that eating the whole chicken or that wearing the, uh, the underwear with the garters like in Bull Durham or whatever it is, yeah. they didn't know why that worked. They just knew that they did it and then it worked. And part of it is if you wear, like there was the moment in Chariots of Fire where Ian Holm gives, um, uh, what's his name, uh, the medal, yes. the necklace. Yeah. And he's the in the, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, and he's in the starting line yeah. and the necklace keeps popping out. And he puts it back in. And what I said was, I wonder if Ian Holm did that on purpose. Because that moment of the thing has popped out and put it back in is going to take Harold Abrams out of his frontal cortex. Yeah. He's going to have this moment. Because he can't. Because what's he going to be thinking? This is the moment of my life. Everything depends upon this moment. And if he's thinking that, is he going to have a better race or a worse race? Right. Worse race. Worse but race. then right. in the middle of that moment, he puts the thing back in. It broke his frontal cortex. And now he's back in the moment. Right. You know? Right. Um, so the, the, there's, and this is why, like, I know the, the other thing too, though, is you can't predict when you're going to hit the zone. Right. There are moments that I showed up on the mat and I felt great. And I'm like, mm -hmm. tonight's going to be a great night. Nope. 
And there are moments where I felt shitty, like I had an upset stomach or I was tired. I hadn't slept well. I was stressed out. And that was the time I actually had the good night where, and it's just like, and there's these moments where like everything's working. It's all happening. I'm just in this, I'm not thinking about it. I'm just doing it. There, There are times when we're recording the cinephiles and we get to my final thoughts and I haven't, I'm not sure what I'm going to say. Right. And then the words come out and they're just the right words. Mm-hmm. And there are times where I really thought about what I want to say. And like Patton part two, I did not like my final thoughts in this last episode of Patton. I had written down in notes what I was going to say. Right. Cause I thought about it in advance. And then when I said it, I didn't like it. Okay. You know, did you, so pre- I, did you re-record it? No, I thought about it. Oh, Okay. I mean, it wasn't when I listened to it, it wasn't as bad as it had felt when I was fine. There's nothing right, wrong with right, it. Right, right, right. I just didn't feel, I felt like I tried to force it. Yeah. Like I was trying to force Patton because I talked about like Saddam Hussein and Afghanistan and things right. like that. And I felt like I was trying to force Patton to fit this other thing I wanted to say. Mm. And it wasn't, it didn't feel good. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that's, that's uh, so interesting because. I'm never intimidated by going live anymore, right? At the no, beginning. you're so natural at it. it did, well, I appreciate that, Steve, but I'm still hard on myself about my introductions, my intros to mm-hmm. shows. Uh, that is the well, one you know, thing. I'm sorry, to, sorry to interrupt, but you know, yeah. for like a year, I made you do all the introductions because I was too scared of for making a show. For our show, yeah. I don't even remember that. Yeah. Wow. I was like, okay. John, I mean, some of the where they were people you knew that I didn't really know. Right. But then oh, it was also, oh, you mean for the guests? You mean for the, for the guests? guests. Yes. yes, yes, yes. I do remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, that's the only time I'm ever hard on myself is the is the uh, openings and the closings occasionally. Um, but, you know, yeah, it's interesting because I, I, I'm – this match has really affected me in ways that I didn't anticipate because everyone has been incredibly complimentary. Everyone, right? There have been a couple of people who have been dicks or whatever, but I don't give a shit about that because that actually isn't affecting me. It's it's just that everyone is so complimentary and yet I lost. And I've never lost when I've played well. And so – and there's not one question that came up except for like one question through the whole match that I – that related to the hours upon hours and the days upon days of studying I did for this match. I wanted to be so prepared for this man. And yet on the critical day, I sabotaged myself a little bit by not just trusting that the knowledge was inside me and uh, that if the game presented itself to me, I could take it and to trust that I'm going to make all the right decisions. And Normally, when I win, that's what happens. Normally. Right. And so that's why I'm obsessed about this one moment where I didn't ask for a repeat, where if I'd asked for a repeat, I think I would have gotten to the right answer. And then in my mind, I win the match. But that's, of course, um, when you look at it from a mathematical point of view, by answering that one question, going up by that amount, the delay before we start the second round adds a few seconds to the time so when the wheel spins there's no guarantee that at that time when the wheel spins with that timeline that what he gets will be what he gets and what i get will be what i get right so by messing with one thing you mess with the overall timeline of the eventuality of of what happens in that match so maybe if i get that question right in the first round it's actually sets it off where i lose by more Right. So you just sure. never know, right? Well, well, and so the question is, is like, because again, I will say, you it sounds like you played a great game. You I know. did. Yeah. So, so how do you, how do you, 
and then this is why this is why people have therapy. This is why like this shit is hard. It's like, okay, how do you take the important lesson, the key lesson that that might present? Yeah. And learn that lesson and disregard, cut off the emotions, not cut off the emotions, right, but right. let go of the emotions that are that are making you obsess about it. And by the way, to be really clear, yeah, there is three things of the movie The Assistance that I made 11 years ago or not yeah. 10 years ago that I'm still every time they pop into my mind, I'm upset. Yeah. Because I f- just fucked up and I still I'm like, literally, you can hear I'm set right now thinking about them. Yeah. You know, so so I'm not saying like, I know how to do this. Right, right. I mean, the the, the, the thing for me, too, like what's interesting, I think we're we're different. Um, we're both competitive, I think, but in different. Oh, ways. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is like this is a thing. It took me a long time to figure out is I'm mostly competitive with myself. Well, actually, no, this is true of you, too, is is. Oh, yeah. I, I would rather if you gave me a choice, like I love playing volleyball. I'm not yeah. I'm too heavy to be good at volleyball at this point, mm-hmm. but I played all through high school and college. I was always on club teams and stuff like that. Yeah. And I'm OK. You know, I'm an OK guy who played on a club team. <laughs> you know, That's right. my love was my level of volleyball. I would way rather play with great people against a great team and lose. Yeah when I played my best game than for me to play a shitty game against shitty people and destroy them. Yes. I agree. No desire. And so you played a great game against the best competitor or among the best competitors possible. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so you gotta like, hopefully you can hold on to that a little bit, at least intellectually. Um, Well, I feel like that's the irony, Steve, is I feel like I'm in the greatest trivia shape I've ever been in as a competitor. But look, someone has to lose and someone yeah. has to win. And sometimes it's not, you know, it's not, it's like a, in the, on the waterfront. It wasn't my day, kid. And it yeah. just wasn't my day. Uh, Wait, are you I, saying you threw the match? No, I, no I'm saying, fine. I'm saying I, 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 I had a moment where I, I would normally have asked for a repeat on a question, but decided to save it just in case. And then it never really bore fruit at the end of the match. So, I regretted the decision, but once again, how can you know what's going to happen? Like, in it's a question you know? of inches. You yeah, know? it is. It is. You know? Absolutely, and that's what haunts it, me because it, it, it was usually, fourth. It was fourth and seven in the in the second quarter. Yeah, and you had the choice of going for it or not. And and you know, yes, had you had you gone for it, had you punted or gone for it, that would have ripple effects through the whole game. That's you know? what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we can't we can't know what it is. I, it, I want to find these books, though, Steve. I want to. I want to start. Expl- I want to read these books about how to. And I don't even know where to start. I know there's the power of now, but by Eckhart Tolle. But I can't listen to him. It drives me nuts. Uh, but is that about? Is that about being in the now? Is that about not moving out of the now? Is that what well, that book is? I, I have not read it. That's okay. You know, I read a lot of books, but I have actually yeah. never read that one. I mean, the concept of being in the moment. You know, you is. You know, hundreds of years of Zen Buddhism, you know, like, <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, this is the, this is the stuff, Yeah, you know, so it's, 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 you know, they're dudes that sat in a cave in India for 30 years trying to be in the moment, you know, <laughs> I, don't that time. I, I will send you, there's a book, uh, I think it's okay. called flow. Let me see. Yeah, um, I want to discover flow state. I want to discover how to negotiate flow state. Yeah, I'll have to find it because I don't have it. It's not called Flow. It's called something else. And that's the one about okay. uh, extreme sports. Yeah, okay. There's also a book called uh, – God, I wish I had the names of these. Um, there's one that's that I think you would like too that's about um, the different uh, – it's about 
I think I told you about it. It's the mm. difference between people who study one thing and people who study many things. Yes. Um, that one's really interesting about this. Another one I just read is called uh, The Biggest Bluff. And it's a woman who um, uh, is a psychologist, PhD, who decided to enter the World Series of Poker. And it's what? all about, and she talks a lot about this being in the moment versus yeah, yes. analyzing that, the please. odds of the game. It's, it's a really good book, and she's really interesting. And a oh, lot of it, as much as it's about poker, it's also about her learning about herself, right, right. about other people, and about competition. You know, so that's a, that's a really good one. The it, it, it's so it's such a struggle for me as a because yeah. I'm just a not in I'm not naturally in the moment. Yeah, I'm in the moment right now. Right, but right. but like, you know, I can be in extremely emotional things, and there's still a part of my brain that's a writer that's sitting back that's thinking yeah. about things. I mean, here's a here's a horrible. I'll tell you a horrible story of me not in the moment. It's my wedding day, and. <laughs> And I'm coming downstairs at the hotel for the, and I, and the, I know I'm going to go out on through this door and I'm going to see Karen in her wedding dress for the first time. Right. And I knew there was a photographer there. I knew, and this was like kind of take some pictures before the actual wedding. And I knew that family was there and friends were there and Karen's family was there. And this is the thought I had. Remember to look surprised and happy and remember to love to, to be to love how she looks in the dress and say that she's beautiful. Right. Like I'm programming myself. Right. To not mess up the moment so I can look like I'm in the moment. And I walked out. And of course, Karen did look beautiful and I was surprised and happy, but I was also pretending to be surprised and happy. Yeah. So that the photograph would be good. You know, right, right. That's how my brain works. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a director's brain, isn't it? I totally. want to stage the scene for yep. the ultimate effect. Blah blah blah. I yeah. totally get that. I totally yeah. get that. Yeah. And so for me, I like like I could never do what you do. I actually love coming on Outlaw Nation because again, it's that being in the moment thing. Yeah. I'm fairly confident about doing it, but yeah. the degree to which you do it is, I, I it boggles my mind. Someone said that to me the other day, too, and it's so weird to me when people say that because it's such a natural thing to me that it's always weird that people like, you know, like, uh, yeah, I think it's Brett Sheridan on, on the SEN live show. He said, I don't he goes, he was joking. He was like, oh, you're, you're launching another show because he was joking on a political show. And he goes, I don't know how you I do two hours on this show and I'm exhausted for the rest of the day. I don't know how you do multiple shows in a day. And I go, this is how I've trained myself since I started doing this five years ago. And it's, I, I knew when I started out that if I don't do it this way, I'm not going to catch up. Um, and then I discovered that I actually enjoy this because I actually do like talking with people. I like yeah. conversing and actually I'm not exhausted by conversation. Uh, I think an introvert is exhausted by conversation An extrovert and I'm half introvert, half extrovert. Uh, but conversation, uh, stimulating conversation is always uh, is never exhausting for me. So I'm never exhausted after I do a show. I may be exhausted by the energy I expend, but I'm never exhausted by the conversation, right? Um, and so, yeah. So to me, it's just so natural. Whereas sitting down to edit a video, right. I, I feel like that's going to be a, a nine-year process for a 10-minute video. And that's what I tell myself. Like, that's the saber tooth. I'm just like, oh, I can't, I'm, I, I can't, I don't even, I, I don't even want to shoot the video. I'm so uh, worried about it. And then usually when I edit, it's literally an hour now, an hour and a half, yeah, two hours. Cause you've gotten faster and you're getting right, better at doing right, what you right. do. I but, even have someone who is willing to edit my reviews for me 
for free. He's like, I want you to do more of them, so I'm willing to edit them. So all you have to do is shoot it. And even that intimidates me. So it's it's a weird little world, man, that so, I created so, in my head. Oh, there was something else I was going to say, and I lost it. But the one thing I, you were talking about – oh, oh, I know. I just want to ask you. Do you know um, who, about Leo Laporte? Uh, the name sounds familiar, but I don't so know if I he's, know. He's a tech guy. I first discovered him. I used to watch tech TV, you know, back yeah. in 2000. Yeah. And uh, he hosts 10 different podcasts. Wow. And he's also on the radio and he hosts, so the ones I listen to, I listen to Mac Break Weekly, which is two hours talking about Apple stuff yeah. and Twit, which is This Week in Tech. And that's his company is Twit. I'll send you some links. But I think about you a lot when I listen to him because he's like rolling off of one show and then <laughs> rolls into the Google show and then yeah. he rolls into the next one. And that's, he's just sitting at his desk rolling and he's such yeah. a pleasant charming talker and so good at you know and he has guests on the show they're three it's always a panel and he's so good at bringing people out i'm like how the fuck does this guy talk <laughs> but, but he's extremely successful it's a very yeah. successful podcast network um the uh uh and then the other thing you were talking about oh i know what it was is i i think part of why the the pre-done stuff is scary is because you're so good at the other stuff yeah you know it's so like I, yeah yeah i mean like for like the standards that I put on a film that I'm editing or a documentary and the standards I put on the cinephiles are very different. There's, there's a million things in every episodes of the cinephiles that I would never tolerate going out if it was a documentary because it's a live conversation and that's, what's good about it. You know, yeah. like it's not, it, it's that when we're stuttering through things or when we're exploring ideas or we sort of go off on a tangent, that's often the best stuff in the show. And it, yeah. it's like a live album. You know, there are things you tolerate in a live album that you would never tolerate in a studio album. Right. When I do a documentary, every moment has to be perfect. There should be no, every rhythm is right. You know, yeah, there's yeah. no hesitations. There's no ums unless they add to the story. Everything must be focused and tight. And I'll go over it over and over. Yeah. You know, well, if you look at a, a cut of, of, it's usually 25 or 30 versions of a scene. Yeah. Before I find it acceptable, you know, and that's a totally different mindset. And the, so when you do a pre-recorded preview, it's not that it has to be at that level of tightness, but it has right. to be pretty tight, you know, whereas you don't have to be so tight when you're doing the live stuff because it's live stuff. Yeah, I can't. I, when I record the, the rare times when I record the preview for our show, um, you don't know how many takes. It's like 60 takes sometimes wow. for a two minute fucking thing. And I, I mean, Lindley's heard me yelling at myself constantly. You, you can talk naturally all the time why are you have why are you stumbling over this why are you messing up words here and it's because in my head i'm like once i get a minute see the difference and, and once i get a minute in i'm like don't mess it up don't mess it up you're a minute in don't mess it up that's what comes to my head so what you talked about earlier about the bowling how when you bowl four three four strikes in a row you know what i'm thinking i'm i'm not thinking bowling is easy i'm thinking okay when am i gonna fuck this up <laughs> don't fuck it up yeah yeah that's literally what i think uh, in those moments, right? And the same thing when I'm playing the showdown, I'm playing, I'm getting all these questions right, and I go, when am I going to mess up the question? When am I going to mess? Instead of just like, just staying in the place of like, okay, let's see what's next. Instead, so, it's more like, oh God, when am I going to fuck this up? So, so first of all, and in spite just, of that, I still won four titles. <laughs> of course. Send me, first of all, send me four, four visions. I'll put them together. Like, like you're just so. Oh, oh, oh! So, of the preview, of the preview. So with, <sighs> okay, you, you might have the illusion that I record previews in one take. 
I don't think I've ever gotten through a whole preview without messing up. <laughs> I usually, it's usually three to four starts minimum where I start. Oh, yeah. And that was terrible. Start, start terrible. And then once I get into a good rhythm, I will, like in this last one that just went out, there's at least six things where I stopped and started again. So I have one recording where I'll go, you know, you know, Patton is a movie about blah, 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 blah. Patton is a movie about blah, blah. It's a movie about blah, 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 blah. And, and they'll say it three times in a row. And then I'll just take out the two that were bad. Right. You know, and because I'm an editor and I have a good ear for it, I kind of know how, how I'm going to be able to fit them together as I'm saying them. Right. But I never get through it perfectly. <laughs> like, it's, I never, never in my life. So, so if you hit it, like, a, if it's like a one mess up, just stop and start from where you go back a sentence and start from where you messed up. I'll fix it. It'll take you'll, me take, take me thirty seconds to fix that. You'll hear the exclamations. <laughs> sure, whatever, <laughs> motherfucker. That's, what, that's right. what editors do. I mean, like yeah, you true. know, there's so many times doing interviews because we talked about this recently because of yeah. our 200th episode coming up. I'll ask the person question three times mm. if I, if I and I'll shape the answer and get it tighter and try to focus it in. And I'm because the the great thing about the the great thing about live stuff is you're really good at it, you're really in the moment. Yeah. The great thing about pre-produced stuff is you only have to do it right once. Yeah, true. And with you the know, editing, yeah. The other Fair five point. times you fucked it up, nobody ever gets to know about those That's things. That's true. true. Nobody you know? see it. So there's a freedom in that too. Yeah, good point, good point. Um, all right. Well, what has this been? A Cinefall's medium, I think? I think this has been a medium, but I think it's a really good conversation. I, I'm glad I hit record. Um, patrons, sometimes that was a real window, <laughs> a real personal window into John and I and our friendship and yep. kind of how we talk. Um, so, uh, I hope you enjoyed that. Thank you as always for all of your support <laughs> and we will see you next time on maybe a, a cinephile short that we plan in a yeah. <laughs> There we go.